We're in the midst of Christmas shopping season, and chances are you're knee-deep in the war on Christmas yourself, battling your friends, neighbors, and fellow countrymen so you can be the winner of this endless game of American consumerism that has come to define the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, being a soldier on the front lines of the war on Christmas can be stressful and exhausting, so why not capitalize on the irony of what I'm about to tell you and get yourself some relief from Cornbread Hemp CBD. Cornbread Hemp is a Kentucky-owned, people-funded organic CBD company that doesn't take corporate cash and provides you the best flower-only, full-spectrum CBD stuff you've come to know and love. Maybe you were body-checked by a dually Dodge Ram piloted by an angry suburban husband hell-bent on getting the last Dyson blow dryer at the local Ulta. Cornbread Hemp has got you covered. They've got a wide array of CBD products that are sure to help you find relief. But seriously, if this happened to you, please consider medical attention. You can get CBD THC gummies, CBD balm, oil, cream, even CBD for your pets. Yep, Big Dog loves it. Use our code BANJO, B-A-N-J-O, for 25% off at checkout and finally get that relief. And be safe out there this holiday season. That's cornbreadhemp.com. We have to find something in our region that is our calling card. And that's not to discredit anybody that's done the very hard, you know, life-altering work of being down in those down in those mines, like pulling out that black gold. But we have to find, we have to find something that is like our calling card that that is prosperous for like the long run. All right, so I'm re- recording now. I forgot to hit record earlier when we went on this music rant, but this is a, a huge episode with music today, and I wanted to start, Callie, by asking you a very simple question. What is your favorite concert that you've ever been to? Ooh. Hit, hitting you wow, with a I've ton of been, bricks. I'm sorry. I I have been to so many concerts. Um, I, I really, I've seen... I've seen Paul McCartney oh, twice and he is so bonkers. Great. Just like as a showman, that one really stands out to me as one that was amazing. Um, and then I, I saw Billy strings when he was still like really new on the, on the scene. And uh, it was literally, it was like 2018, 2017, I can't remember. Um, No, it was 2018. And it was at this uh, like tiny little music festival, the Old Settlers Music Festival near Austin in, because I was living in Texas at the time. Um, And actually Danny and I drove down because my dad was playing and I had I had had one of Billy I had heard one of his EPs and I was like oh this is one of the other bands I really want to see and we stood in the pouring rain um, listening to Billy Strings and then right after him was the War and Treaty and they are unbelievable like they are so so good um, so I think that like. Of the big name artists that I've seen, um, I think Paul McCartney stands out to me. And then of like kind of the small venue, like close up, amazing, like being right there in a crowd of like 200 people, um, that would, Billy Strings and the War and Treaty were, that was probably my favorite. Because it was also like very memorable, just like it was the first concert I saw with Danny. Um, it was in the pouring rain. It was the first time my dad met Danny. Um, it was just that's really incredible. Fun. That's such a cool story. That's so yeah neat. You have so many interesting experiences. Yeah. I'll break it down with big venue and small venue. 
Big venue, easy, easy. No question, went to it earlier this year. Jimmy Buffett, the man is a legend. His concerts are like a giant party. They're so much fun. Everybody's having a blast, and his yeah. music is just fun. Yeah, I know, so it's like fun. typical white person music. Don't care, love it, amazing. Immaculate vibes. Immaculate vibes, absolutely. So loved that, so much fun. Small venue has to be, uh, it was at the Bluebird in Nashville. We would go... Uh, when we lived there, I would take Kristen there every year for her birthday, which was really fun. It's a great gift. Yeah. And so we saw Matricia Berg and Marshall Chapman there in the round. And in the round, the artists are in the middle of the room, and the tables are kind of positioned to go in a circle around them. So it's really intimate, awesome atmosphere. Matricia Berg was right next to us, and she actually showed a table uh, where she put a drink on it next to Kristen, which is really cool. Uh, she's amazing. She's probably more known as a songwriter, I would think. Uh, she wrote Strawberry Wine. Yeah, I love, I fucking love that song. That is an anthem of the 90s. I, I still, I regular, that's in my regular rotation. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she wrote Strawberry Wine among many, many other songs. She's incredibly accomplished uh, songwriter and musician. So I really loved seeing her. And it was just really a special experience. Anyway, I know that was a bit of a rant, but I, I miss Nashville a lot. I, I miss living there. And the Bluebird, I know it was it's kind of like a touristy place now, I guess, because of the show Nashville. But I don't care because we loved it so much. And it was it was such, just such a cool place to go. I yeah, it's that's it's a great place to be. I, I just Nashville's a great place. Undefeated. Speaking of Nashville, speaking of Nashville. It, this coming weekend, my dad is playing. Is he the playing Grand with uh, Balsam Range? So Balsam Range is playing mm. with John Driscoll Hopkins, who is uh, he's the bass player for the Zach Brown Band, um, and he has ALS, oh, wow. and so they're doing like a big benefit show for it. Uh, it it's like for his for his charity. That's incredible. Here for ALS. And yeah, it's an amazing cause. And so Balsam Range will be there playing um, with John Hopkins and a host of other people um, for an amazing cause. And I don't know, this is like my, I, I can't, I, I can't even tell you how many times my dad has played the Opry, but he used to play a lot more. So this is the first time in like a year that he's been. So my whole family is stoked. I'm the only one not going. <laughs> But um, I, I just I feel too bad to go. So we're say Danny and I are staying home. But my mom and my brother, my aunt and uncle are going. Um, so it should be an amazing time. Well, that that's incredible. We're all big fans of your dad here, and I just can't stress how amazing it is that, that you have a family member, your dad, who who plays at such incredibly celebrated venues, historic venues, and amazing ones in this country, and that's just a really cool thing. And we are fortunate here to have you on to share your insight with that. Today, a big episode with music, to be honest with you. It's crazy. We've got a great interview with the venerable Philip Bowen, an incredible fiddle player extraordinaire from the great state of West Virginia. I was sadly unable to make this interview. I'm extremely sad, especially after I, I went through and listened to it and edited it because it just sounded like a really incredible interview. He, he seems like a really amazing person. Callie, I would love to uh, have your insight before you know we get into the rest of the show. Holy smokes. This guy, what number one, what a lovely soul. Just 
an absolute pleasure to be in his presence. The joy that he exudes in his videos is the joy that he exudes in talking about his music and in, and being present. And I just I loved speaking with him and he deserves every single bit of credit and, and notoriety that he has gotten uh, in the last couple of years. So I'm just I'm just fucking stoked that he's on the show. Me too. Like, that's a big get. He's a he's a pretty yeah, popular guy. I fangirled guy. a little bit. Good. I yeah. I'm fangirling from afar. <laughs> um, and it, just on top of that, he's got like this infectious smile that it's impossible not to love. Um, really looking forward to that interview for y'all to listen to. And then, uh, in addition to the interview, we've got under the radar in Appalachia some wild stuff going on with potential book bands, although they won't call it a book ban in West Virginia. It's, um, which it's some wild shit you're not going to want to miss. But first, Callie, our list this week it's a doozy and. I will just premise this by saying you contributed heavily to it in that 99.9% of it is from your institutional knowledge and worldview. I just contributed um, the Google Workspace account that has the Google Doc <laughs> that we wrote it on. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I, I have to give a nod here to both my mom and my dad who really, I, I didn't want to just read you a Wikipedia article or, or a regular old bio on these folks. I asked my dad for the inside scoop on them. Oh shit. So Mark Pruitt, this is news yeah, to me. All right. Mark Pruitt has given backstage never before heard stories for this list. Shit. So buckle the fuck up. I am buckled right like right now. I'm I have not read this yet, by the way. Like this is it's gonna blow your reactions from me, folks, but this is um you know this look, value add, this is one of the many reasons why we brought Callie onto the show, why she has (laughs) been a champion for everything that we've done, and this is it right here. I am hyped, so let's get started. All right. All right. Let's do it. So I want to just address the elephant in the room. I have to do it. I'm getting I'm getting like I'm getting in my in my position of of ready to get into this. So the elephant in the room is that my dad is not on this list. And I have to tell you the reason that he's not on this list. And it is one word. It is nepotism. And if we are anything on this show, it's principled. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. But he, he really should be. Um, and I am going to tell you about some of the things that he's done um, just right at the top because I am so, so proud of him. Um, he he is one of the best ever to come out of Appalachia. You would be shocked at how many banjo players that you know and love that are not from Appalachia. Um, but my that is really one of the best ones ever, ever to come out of the mountains. He was even included in Earl Scruggs' own book called Master of the Five String Banjo. He has played on industry standards such as Little Maggie, Think of What You've Done, and I Hope You Learned on Bluegrass Rules, which is a Grammy Award winning album. He was uh, on Rhonda Vincent, Rince, sorry, he was on Rhonda Vincent's first album, um, known for, she's an, an absolute superstar, but that album album is known for the Lonesome Wind Blues and and other great songs. He was on 1978 Sweet Temptation with Ricky Skaggs that features Little Cabin Home on the Hill with Emmylou Harris and Dolly fucking Parton um, and even more greats like Jerry Douglas. Um, He's played with Flatten Scruggs, Jimmy Martin, Ricky Skaggs, uh, James Monroe, and one of the top bluegrass bands in still in rotation today, 
Balsam Range, um, which are known for number one songs like Last Train to Hit Kitty Hawk. And if you want to look at my dad's like best, some of his best work, look at Chain Gang Blues and Marching Home. He's known for his thumb heavy power picking and for his creative kickoffs and the flair that he puts into the banjo. Truly, he should be on this list, but he's not because I made the list. Womp womp. So (laughs) there we go. Yeah, look, we are nothing if not principled. We have these ironclad contracts, right? Paid for, <laughs> thank God, by Patreon. These high-powered attorneys that charge buku bucks an hour. Uh, no, I'm kidding, obviously. But yes, uh, important to keep the integrity. That's right. But I also, speaking of high-powered attorneys, I do have to tell you a fun fact. Balsam Range shares a music record label attorney with well, Taylor Swift. And as they should. That That is wild to me, and I would take way more time to unpack that more, but we should hop into the list. Callie, let's get rolling. Who do we have first yeah. on your list? So, all right, we're going in descending order of importance, and I have seven folks for you. So number seven on this list is a very kind of not- well-known by name, but extremely influential man named Joe Medford. Joe was one of the early pioneers of bluegrass three-finger style banjo, and he was a contemporary of Earl Scruggs. You're going to hear Earl Scruggs' name a lot in this list, so just expect him to be on it. We'll get to him. Um, But he was a contemporary of Earl, so started back in the 1940s. Um, Joe was actually from Clyde, North Carolina, and was the first banjo player to record with Mac Wiseman, who really was part of the, the major, like, top four people to put bluegrass into the mainstream. Um, He performed with the Murphy Brothers first, though, and um, Sonny Osborne told my dad one time that when you heard Joe play in 1951 that you couldn't tell him apart from Earl Scruggs. My dad first heard him at the the ramp convention, obviously, (laughs) in 1983. Um, Like ramps as in like wild onions? They have, Literally wild. They're onions. organized enough to have their own convention. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So at the Ram convention in North Carolina in 1983 and heard him with a friend of his and thought that he sounded just like Earl Scruggs. So this guy is really flying under the radar, but he, alongside Earl Scruggs, kind of helped to develop what is known today as bluegrass-style banjo playing. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing who's playing at the yeah. Cornbread and Chili Summit terrible joke anyway moving on i so you know me i'm bluegrass dumb but and so i've never heard of joe medford so this is very exciting in fact i'm just i'm just here for the party i'm i'm like the listener here many people will have not heard of him i think i you know i i'm really looking forward to the the bluegrass junkies what they're gonna say about this list um because yeah The grassies, yes. Um, so, because I think that uh, we've delved so far back into the catalog of bluegrass that we really started to look at, and when I say we, it was me and my dad and my mom, looked at who influenced the most popular people in bluegrass music. Because a lot of those folks who popularized the music um, were not actually from Appalachia. You know, like Don Reno and some of the really humongous greats were not from the region um and so these are the people in appalachia who helped to kind of spread that appalachian style in the genre you convened a think tank 
to come up with it. This was not I just did. like you puttering around on the computer, Google and stuff. Like this was, you, you got a brain trust together of some of the greatest yes. minds in, in bluegrass music. And this is like the yes. list. Damn. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're just some All high right. caliber shit. All right. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's go to number six. I think we're going to, we're just going to get even more high caliber. So number six is high caliber. Oh, I like it. I like it. So number six is Walter Hensley. (laughs) The most notable thing about him is that he gained a national spotlight briefly. He was a bright star that burned very briefly at a brief moment in time, but it was the right moment in time. Um, And he cut one record in 1964 with Capitol Records, and it was called the Five String Banjo Today. And during that time, Flatten Scruggs... Not the... Best album name, in my opinion, but not great. (laughs) But during that time, Flatt and Scruggs were they'd been on national TV for eight years and folk music was buzzing. They were being featured in tons and tons of TV shows and news shows and radio shows. And they were everywhere. And so like folk music was really having a renaissance in that time. And so the label Capitol Records, which is still around today, they wanted to cash in on the popularity of the banjo. And they wanted to reap the rewards of cashing in on it. So they they did a nationwide search for someone who was amazing but was not well known. And they found Walter Hensley. He was just 17 years old when he recorded that record. And it was a massive hit for Capitol Records. The record itself influenced an entire generation of bluegrass pickers, like including my dad and his all of his contemporaries. My dad says that that's one of the, the, the main records that inspired him and to help him kind of learn about who what his identity with the banjo was. And so um, that was really Walter's only brush uh, with with fame. But it did it did put him out there for decades. And the 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 like big pickers of that era know who he is and and were big time like followers and disciples of him. Damn. So it was like a nationwide search. That's wow. That's like uh, it's like when Nikki Six and Vince Neil went looking for uh, a guitar player and they found Mick Mars and thus came Motley Crue. I watched yeah. a documentary once. That's, Just like that's that. Basically <laughs> the same thing, you know. Same Bluegrass story. picking and and rock music from the eighties. Yeah, they're very similar. Um, no, that's this yeah. is so neat. Uh, so, um, were there any Mark Pruitt fast facts in that? Not not anything other than it was part of what inspired him to play the banjo. Inspired um, your dad. So I mean, yeah, to play. So my yeah, when when in 1964, my dad was 13 years old, and he had gotten his first banjo as a gift when he was 11. So he was two years deep into playing the banjo, and so this was like right when he was starting to go from learning it as like a you know here's here is the the precise things to do and and start that was when he started making his own kind of impression of it and his own style okay this is a better comparison walter hensley playing the banjo and inspiring your dad 
when he got his banjo at 10 is like the accordion salesman coming to Weird Al Yankovic's door and selling him an accordion, thus created the greatest parody musician of all time. <laughs> okay, that's that's better than the Motley Crue reference, I guess. I'm just trying to add value here. That's all I'm trying to do. That's Walter Hensley. Yep. I love it. I love it. No, I think it's perfect. So number five, you're ready to go here. Number five is just the most kick-ass of women, Kristen Scott Benson. So uh, she is one of she's she's a contemporary of my dad's today like she's younger than my dad but she she is still playing out there today she's amazing um but the way that she got started was that her grandfather named Hogan was one of the yeah was he was the banjo player in the band WT or WBT Briarhoppers don't ask me what the WBT stands for I have no idea I think it stands for wow big turtles <laughs> yeah okay we'll go with that but they were at the time like when he was playing they were a really big band in North Carolina and Hogan encouraged his granddaughter Kristen to learn the banjo she is incredible she's most famous with her work with the Graskles, which I think is just That's one of the best band names ever phenomenal name just so good. Um, having won with them twice IBMA Entertainer of the Year, which is the International Bluegrass Music Association. Big awards. Um, she's also a five-time IBMA Banjo Player of the Year, and she's the recipient of 2018's Steve Martin Prize for Excellence in Banjo and Bluegrass. So here's the Mark Pruitt tidbit here. She and my dad are very good friends. And actually, he was like, do you want to talk to her for this? I'll just give give you her number if you want. Shit. And I was like, I was like, no, I don't want to bother her with this. Um, but she Mark told Pruitt, my dad. Mark giving guy. I know. I know. Um, so she told my dad uh, that when she was a little kid first learning to play the banjo, that someone told her parents, you have to take. Kristen to see this guy in Asheville and her parents would take her to Bill Stanley's barbecue to watch none other than my dad play shows at Bill Stanley's barbecue in Asheville, Aww. North Carolina. He's making this nepotism thing real hard. I know. <laughs> also, I, I lightly Googled and I believe that WBT was the call signal or whatever it's called for the radio station in North Carolina that they first oh. played on. I, I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. I just like found one article while you were talking while I was listening. But it, it was based out of Charlotte, I believe. Nice. I love that. So there um, you go. But yeah, Kristen Scott Benson, it seems like, uh, you know, Walter Hensley is to Mark Pruitt as Mark Pruitt is to Kristen Scott Benson. We're just building this legacy of right? bluegrass banjo players here. I know. Just it's amazing. It's amazing. The, the the industry is not that big. Everybody knows each other if you're in the top tier of this industry. And so everybody has these connections to each other that are really beautiful and wonderful. And my dad in his career has made it a point. Um, my dad's a big feminist. Um, and so he's Ooh. made it he's made it a point to lift up and give opportunities to women in the industry. And Kristen 
Jason is certainly one of those who he has, you know, obviously her, her, her success is a credit to her and her alone, but having people in the industry say this person is legit because for years, decades, generations, the, the phrase was, oh, you're pretty good for a girl. And my mom has been told that all the time. I mean, my mom is an amazing banjo player and she she has been told that her entire career. And so my dad really made it a point to never, ever be that guy and to only open doors for women in the industry. What a guy. Again, making this nepotism thing a real pain in the ass. (laughs) Um, But again, we are too principled to go back on our rules. However, that is wonderful to see. And I love hearing that. and haven't met your dad yet, but he seems like a great guy. Uh, I'm also excited about this next guy who is on our list, um, which I yeah. uh, didn't know the first fact about him. So take it away. Number four on our list is Sonny Osborne. So everybody in the room, everybody listening to this podcast knows a Sonny Osborne song. And that song is Rocky Top. Rock it up, you'll always be. I'm not going to sing anymore, but you know it. Go Falls. Go yep. Falls. No, that's it. That's You know it. So, Sonny Osborne, great, great vocalist, great banjo player. Um, he's from Hayden, Kentucky, and he grew up in a really musical family. By the time that Sonny was 13 years old... He auditioned and got a job with Bill Monroe, who is, if if you don't know who Bill Monroe is, he's the father of bluegrass music. (laughs) So um, he didn't play the banjo, though. He played the mandolin. Um, So this guy was touring with the number one bluegrass guy in history at the age of 13. Um, Bill... Yes, Bill recorded uh, with with Sonny. One of the first things they did, they recorded something called the Pike County Breakdown. And Sonny, actually, this is this is a tidbit from my dad. Sonny went to Bill and said, I actually think that Flat and Scruggs already recorded that one. And Bill, who was known to be like a bit of a a bit of a character, said, I don't care. We're going to do it better. (laughs) I I love that confidence. Love it. That's the confidence of a man who recorded Rocky yeah, Top. Incredible. Um, so after he after he finished up his stint with Bill Monroe, um, he and his brother uh, started a band. So his brother, the reason that he they didn't start out just together was his brother was in the military and he was in the Korean War. So they joined uh, Jimmy Martin, and, and after uh, like after he got back, and then broke out to become the legendary Osborne Brothers, which is who that's the band that recorded Rocky Top. So his style was basically second generation Earl Scruggs player. Um, Sonny developed this though, like very bluesy style. He used a lot of like bluesy chords and things and runs um, that made his playing and his style very unique. Um, I I will note uh, that there are a lot of pickers on here, most of which are power pickers. So people who play with a lot of strength and who play with a lot of force, um, my dad being one of those people. But Sonny, not to his detriment, but to his own style, was not necessarily a power picker. He really had a more kind of gentle, um, very uh, purposeful mm. style. 
That's super interesting. See, I didn't, I didn't know anything about any of this, and I'm learning this all in real time along with you, the listener, so I love this. Uh, very fascinating, interesting guy. Love love the Rocky Top connection. Also interesting that he's from uh, Kentucky, so fun fact for all you Vols fans there. Well, let's move on to the last three. These last three are some, some real heavy hitters because I actually recognize the names, so... Yeah, the last three, if you listen to Bluegrass at all, you will know these people. Um, They are, I would say, the big three banjo players. Uh, They're they're really just the most influential people. So number three is Ralph Stanley. Mm. So Ralph Stanley was from the Clinch Mountains in southwestern Virginia, and he grew up in a musical family, and his mother played the claw hammer banjo, which gave Ralph this really interesting... He was one of the first to play both styles really well. Um, So I did not include claw hammer. This is why we said it's the best blue Appalachian bluegrass style because it would be impossible to compare <laughs> compare the two. Um, but he did play and it gave him this like really interesting take and a lot of character. Um, but his mom was the one who played the claw hammer banjo. Um, he sang in church and he and his brother Carter began performing as the Stanley brothers when they were still teenagers in the mid 1940s. They played literally wherever they could. They played schools and churches and community centers and festivals and and anywhere where they could get out there. They were out there. Um, They were also prolific in the recording studio. They recorded in their tenure over 100 albums, which is just how do you even do that? (laughs) I cannot imagine being motivated by anything professionally or probably even personally to be able to crank out that much music. And I'm sure it was quality music. That's like, like it's one album every three and a half days for a year. And it was all just like, it flowed from them. That's, that's something, I mean, they are really, really known for this. Um, so in the early days, um, they did a lot of cover songs, which is a very normal in bluegrass music. Everybody does their own version of songs. You know, like my dad is on kind of the standard recording of Little Maggie, but Billy Strings just recorded Little Maggie a couple of years ago in a totally different way and gave it his own flair. That's just kind of because it's a an oral tradition and it's a cultural tradition. Bluegrass is more than just writing your own songs and putting out unique things. It's about contributing to what is already out there and the catalog of songs and watching it develop over time. It's one of the really cool things about about bluegrass music. So you guys are going to love this because this is a Mark Pruitt tidbit. So because they were doing a ton of covers, Lester Flatt and Carter Stanley, which was Ralph Stanley's brother, got into an altercation <laughs> in Bristol, in Bristol, Tennessee, because Lester was upset that the Carter that Carter and Ralph were ste- quote unquote stealing songs. Ralph later said that they that the reason that they uh, that they all have all of these amazing Carter Stanley penned songs was because of that altercation that Carter said after Lester 
you know, I don't know if it got physical or what, but after he dressed him down, he said to Ralph, I'll never play another Flat and Scruggs song. <laughs> so, so wild. <laughs> well, look, I don't have much to add here as far as commentary, but what I will say is I truly appreciate that they picked Bristol to have this bout of fists right. or whatever, <laughs> this 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 altercation. Yeah. <laughs> because... Because it's it's straddling the line of two states, Virginia and Tennessee. So it's almost like Virginia and Tennessee are fighting each other for who gets to have that yep. city. So I love that. I really hope that they took this altercation to the actual state line to make it really amazing. poetic. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> it would be so good. So um, great music video. Idea. When we talk, oh yeah. Um, when we talk about the style that Ralph played, um, we think a lot about Earl leading. We, we talked about this in a previous episode. If you if you want to go back and listen to kind of how three finger, finger style is done, go back and listen to our other bluegrass episode. But Earl Scruggs really led with his thumb. And when you're playing the banjo, you play with three fingers and it's thumb, index, middle, thumb, index, middle is the forward roll. There are two other roles, but it's that's kind of the most common one. But Ralph's style led with his index finger, which gave him a a real kind of flavor that was very different than Earl Scruggs. And a lot of people, I'm not saying I agree with this, but I do think it's worth, it's notable that a lot of people would say that it, that, that, that meant that he was a tad more limited um, in his style than Scruggs was, but it had that kind of driving bluegrass sound that we all know and love still, but it just had a different flair. And he, that was kind of what was, that was what was different about Ralph. Um, he also played, this is really interesting and I did not know this until my dad uh, and I had this conversation. Ralph played a raised head banjo, and that has a lot more treble um, than a flat head banjo, which is what Scruggs played. So when you listen to Ralph Stanley and, and the Stanley brothers and their recordings, there's an almost tinny like 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 t- like a tin can like a tinny vibe to the banjo that some people really love some people really hate it but that comes from the raised head banjo um and a, a flat head banjo is is literally what it says it's 11 inches and it's flat and it has a lot more of that bass and the, the tonal difference you can really hear so last little tidbit on ralph stanley these last three have so many stories and are so rich in history that this one is they're just a little bit longer sorry Um, Earl Scruggs once told my dad while in a car on the way to the recording studio with Ricky Skaggs. So it was Earl Scruggs. Yeah, it was Earl Scruggs, my dad and Ricky Skaggs in a car. This was in 1982 that Carter Stanley asked him to go. They asked, asked, uh, asked Earl to go out on a weekend with the Stanley, Stanley brothers to show Ralph what he did on the banjo. And that's when Ralph changed his style from two finger to three finger. So technically, even though he played it differently than Earl, he learned the the method from Earl Scruggs. Shit. These, this is just like, this is the uh, only way you yeah. can get this information is by listening to the show, first of all. Um, I love these tidbits. I love that this community is yeah. so small and they're so great. And, um, and I'm excited about the top two here. And uh, these ones will be very familiar. Yeah, In fact, we named two. an episode after one of these, the next one. Yep. Yep. So number two is J.D. Crow. 
cannot even talk about the bluegrass banjo without talking about jd crow what a guy just an absolute fucking legend jd was from lexington and i am counting that i because you know everybody has different definitions of what appalachia is and was at the time and i'm counting it so jd was from lexington yeah close enough um and when he was 13 years old flat and scruggs came to lexington and they were performing weekly shows so at that time it was like kind of a thing to do to go to a town hang out in that town record at the local radio station do a few shows it was just easier because you had a population center there and you had venues and you had enough you know radio to get out there so they'd camp out for a few weeks And there's this really wonderful photograph that was kind of lost to time until recently of um, this giant audience watching Flatt and Scruggs play and this 13-year-old kid with his hands under his chin watching Earl Scruggs play. And... um, so it's just like this this kid was in rapture of of this music and of this style from day, day one. Um, and so he his dad, because he was committed to helping J.D. get out there, um, it, it would take him to the local radio station where Flatt and Scruggs would play all the time during those weeks. And Scruggs kind of became his mentor, um, which is kind of a bonkers thing that happened, but it happened. So JD's big break was with Jimmy Martin. Um, and he recorded the definitive version of train 45 with Jimmy Martin. And his style was certainly Scruggs inspired, but it was different enough that he gave him a signature. He is one of the power pickers and he had a lot of flair. The man just exuded showmanship when it came to, when it came to making his music something that was something to behold, like J.D. Crow put his heart and soul into his music. And because he was not limited by something he could invent, like Scruggs was, he could go go further. Basically, he was standing on their shoulders and became just this this creative genius. Um, so he uh, he is now this indelible figure in bluegrass music, a monster legend. And um, he was with Jimmy Martin for for five years uh, and during that time recorded seminal works. But the one that I always like is Honey, You Don't Know My Mind, which is an incredible song. Um, And Jimmy Martin, there's nobody, like there's no character in bluegrass music like Jimmy Martin and he's just, just, chef's kiss amazing um so after he left jimmy martin he became a a band leader multiple times but his biggest band and listen to this lineup was in 1975 with jd crow and the new south with with people like tony rice ricky skaggs jerry douglas and bobby sloan a lineup never before and never since seen so that's like the biggest most famous conglomerate of musicians maybe only rivaled by the bluegrass album band which was a lot of those same players but like as a touring band that's like unbelievable damn Damn. i feel like i'm in some ways almost a part of the audience for this because i i don't have a lot to add and i'm not saying that's a bad thing i actually think it's a good thing because you bring such a level of expertise and then all this personal insight which is so cool and i hope everybody else appreciates it i think they will Thank you. I hope it's interesting. I I'm so, I love this stuff so much, and I hope that my love of this music oh, is coming is. through to folks. It because, is thick. Oh, good. Because 
<laughs> Good. Because this is like, this is, this is the shit that I care about bringing to our, our listeners. Um, last thing on JD Crow, uh, my dad would visit him a lot in his old age. And my brother who also plays the banjo just a couple of months before he died, um, JD Crow was giving my brother tips on the banjo. So this man, until his last breath was sharing his love of this music. Um, and I think that that is so beautiful. And, and that's, I, I hope that, that more artists become like that, just so open and willing to share. JD Crow was just top of the top. When you first say the name, when you first say JD, like my, my, I immediately start to get like high blood pressure and my, my heart rate goes up, but then <laughs> settles out with Crow. So just, you know, it, it's a conditioned response. Um, anyway, number one is the heaviest yeah. of hitters, a name that is ingrained in not only bluegrass music history, but just music history in general. Yeah. And uh, also sounds like uh, maybe like a 1950s era brand for home cleaning products. I don't know. Yep. An incredible banjo player, incredible person, Earl Scruggs. Had to be number one. Couldn't be anybody else. The man needs no introduction. After you have heard how much he's influenced this music through every single one of the the last six that I have mentioned. It's hard to it's hard to give you any more than that. So everyone knows Earl. Everyone loves what he did for bluegrass music. He's from Shelby, North Carolina, which is just outside of Appalachia, but we claim him as our own. Um and he played with a lot of local groups from when he was young, did some stuff with his brothers. Um, but here's what I don't think that people know. And this is, I told I told my dad, I was like, we've talked about Earl Scruggs before. I need the inside scoop. So everything else is like very insider baseball that might. It's just awesome that we have the ability to pull out this much depth and richness. So. One of the first big exposures for Earl Scruggs, he had uh, on WWNC Radio, which is a station out of Asheville. And he blew people away. People absolutely loved him. Wait, did you say it was called WNC? WWNC. Checks out. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Solid name for a radio station. Um, so... My dad remembers a story of reading like a newspaper story at the time where Earl, because he was not big yet at all, he said that he had to put as much oil in his car to get there as gasoline just from Shelby to Asheville. <laughs> so it's hilarious. Even the greats have to work their way up. Um, so after that, Earl played in a band with a, a man called Lost John Miller, which I think is just an insanely good bluegrass name. Um, and it was there that a fiddle player was who kind of scouted him. A man named Jim Shoemate from Hickory, North Carolina, heard him play uh, with Lost John Miller. And Jim was kind of a big time fiddle player in North Carolina at the time. And he took Earl to the Grand Ole Opry for his very first audition with Bill Monroe. And the rest is history. Dear Old Dixie was his audition song, which is a great instrumental. Um, and Bill didn't comment much at the time. But uh, on Earl's 
picking, but it, he auditioned on a Saturday and Bill hired him on the next Monday. So he did not have too hard of a time picking Earl Scruggs um, out of the out of the crowd. So Earl is just the most amazing the most amazing banjo player in the history of bluegrass music. Um, my favorite other than my dad and just like an all around amazing person. I had the opportunity to meet him several times and he was nothing but lovely. And yeah, the man is just an absolute monster legend. Well, that was fantastic. I am so grateful that we have you on the show that you have this institutional knowledge within yourself and within your family that you can share and impart that wisdom and just, interesting historical facts to our audience. So I really appreciate that. I think it's a huge value add and I hope people appreciate this. I know that our last bluegrass episode was really well received. So I think this one will be too. And we've got so much more to this episode, even still. Awesome. Thank you so much. I love doing these bluegrass lists. Let us know if you want more because I'll do fiddle players. I'll do guitar players. I mean, number one on guitar players is going to be Tony Bryce. Sorry, I'm just going to spoil that right now. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll even do like didgeridoo players. Well, we'll, you sure. We'll do upright bass players. Who knows? I actually have a very good list of upright bass players. Mandolin of players, you whatever can. you want, y'all. Dobro players, we can do it. <laughs> Anyway, well, that was a great list, a power-packed list, if I if I may. This is going to be a great, like, musical episode, so, um, and I really want to get to our interview, but first, we have a couple of really quick announcements um, about some new things happening, uh, and some annual things happening. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Anyway, we've got a few announcements, and they're really important, so check them out. Um, first of all, Appalachian Bookshelf, we announced this on social media. We are starting a book club. Hell yeah, we are with Reed Appalachia. With Reed Appalachia, our good friend Kendra Winchester, of formerly of Reading Women absolute podcast, goddess. massively successful, absolute goddess, um, absolute unit, and has two of the best corgis on the face of the planet. True. But in addition to that, if that weren't enough, she's also a great podcaster and a book fiend, if I may. Um, and an expert of anything literature, especially Appalachian literature. She's starting a podcast coming uh, early next year. And in conjunction to that, we're doing a book club. Callie, do you care to explain a little bit more? Yes. Okay. It's a quarterly book club um, where where we are going to be making selections of the newest, the most beloved, and some of the most impactful Appalachian literature in in history. Um so we're starting this in January and we will kick it off January 9th. Um, we'll announce our choice for the book that that week. We will have reading guides along the way with discussion questions where you can contribute to the conversation. And then in March, we are going to uh, myself, Chuck and Kendra are going to record a podcast episode about the book that we have chosen um, with our different takes. And one of the reasons that I think this is such a great idea is that a lot of people don't have the time or the energy to kind of dive into Appalachian literature in the way that, you know, myself and Kendra kind of just like live for. <laughs> um, and we really want to create a space where we can hype up Appalachian literature and talk about some of the insanely amazing things that happen in it and also welcome in people who may not be big time readers. This is a space if you are interested, if you want to be part of the conversation, if you want to read the whole book, if you want to read part of the book, if you want to listen to the podcast, 
We want you to be in this space and we want it to be inclusive. We also think that it's a great opportunity for people who don't live in the region to get access to the ideas within our general space and to understand the Appalachian viewpoint of a lot of these books that get national attention or maybe are reviewed in national papers that maybe don't align with how Appalachian people actually feel about these books. And so that's something that we feel like is going to be a really illusion, big asset. Um, <laughs> although I don't think we're going to pick that book. <laughs> no, definitely not. But uh, <laughs> that just was funny. But yes, it's books like that. Um, and so it's going to be absolutely fantastic. We're so excited to, to bring you into the fold and to talk to you about these books. We're also going to be, not only is this book club going to be amazing, we're going to bring in local bookshops from Appalachia to partner with us on this. So we'll be supporting your local indie bookshops uh, in the process which is amazing. Hell yeah. And we will post a link where you can sign up and be one of the first to be notified and be a part of this when uh, we're ready to launch it. We've already got over 100 signups, and we want you to be a part of that too. Very exciting stuff. I'm just over the moon excited. I think this is something that's it, going to be an yeah. institution, and it's a very important one, and one that is, you know, honestly, it's long overdue. So I'm glad that we're doing it, and, and we brought in... We, brought, we partnered yeah. with the experts, you know. We, we really have. Um, so excited about that. Second thing is the award show, the third annual. I don't even, I think we were going to rename it at one point, but why, Bob? The third annual Appalachia Awards, Appalachia Appalachian Awards. I don't know what we're calling it. It's going to be the award show. You know about it. I love this. And I have a personal story about this and why people should nominate the people who they think deserve this award. The very first, the very first Appalachian Awards, I won Appalachia's Rising Star. And here I am, two years later, host of this show. What can we say? We're not in the prediction business, but we we certainly <laughs> predicted something. So if you win... Appalachian Rising Star, you too could be a host on this show. <laughs> Just kidding. So right now we are still taking submissions for nominations. That's going to be through December 14th. That's a Wednesday. So the day after this episode comes out, make sure you get your nominations in. We'll have a Google form. You can link, I'll link it in the show notes. You can also check the link in our bio on any social media. Do that. And then we're going to be very quickly opening up a final voting round once we have narrowed down the finalists for each category and then we're going to do an award show and uh we're going to do we're going to get something like dundies or something to give to the winners i'm not sure yet but we're, we're cooking up something cool yeah it's going to be very cute and very fun our last announcement is uh, we want to talk about our the last episode that we did in November. So if you have not listened to our episode from the last week of November, do it and do it right now. It's about right now. the climate catastrophe that is the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Uh, to jog your memory, the Mountain Valley Pipeline is the incomplete fracked gas pipeline that goes over 303 miles from northwestern Vir West Virginia to southern Virginia. We just had a huge win 
in this. Uh, we talk about it in the show, but here's an update for you. Um, we were able to rally the troops and we beat Manchin's dirty deal in the National Defense Authorization Act because of our listeners and the supporters of people like Power, uh, the activists on the ground, the communities, Appalachian Papaws, people of color, uh, women, everybody was part of this coalition to to beat this and we did and it's so exciting and we have actually partnered with power um that's spelled P-O-W-H-R, which stands for Protect Our Water, Heritage, and Rights. And they're a multi-state coalition who is truly leading the fight against the Mountain Valley Pipeline. You guys know us. We only partner with brands and organizations that we are very truly aligned with. And we have found that power... Like we started this and we knew we were on the same page. And then as we've gone forward in this partnership over the last month... We've only been just emboldened and and more excited about our partnership with them because they're doing absolutely incredible work. Um, together, we've put together an amazing primer on the pipeline and why it's no good for Appalachia and why we still need to keep up the fight. We may have beat this dirty deal, but there is going to be a next dirty deal. So don't miss the last episode from November. It's episode number 159 called The Climate Crisis in Appalachia and Pipeline Politics. And thank you so much for supporting this partnership. Very exciting stuff with the dirty deal and getting it flushed down the toilet for now. Uh, but yeah, it, it's not going anywhere. The, Joe Manchin is hungry. He's uh, actually a better term. He's thirsty for this pipeline. Think of this pipeline as a straw that delivers money to Joe Manchin's thirsty mouth. That's a weird imagery. I'm sorry, but hopefully it sticks in your head. Um, it, it's great imagery. <laughs> It's certainly evocative of something. I'm not sure what. But anyway, let's get into our interview. We've got Philip Bowen. Philip Bowen on the strings. What an incredibly talented person. We are big fans of him. I know we talked about it a little bit in the run-up to the episode. So, Callie, anything to add before we get rolling? Um, I don't think so. Other other than I really enjoyed speaking with Philip, and I I know that you all will love this interview and his energy and and the way that he cares about this region. Um, and uh, this is just a formal request for him to move back. Well, it was great to have another ex-Padalachian on the show. Love to see that. Anyway, without further delay, Philip Bowen. Um, so I, I'm like a little bit fangirling right now. Um, I'm here with Philip Bowen, um, uh, and, and I have been following your music since like deep in the woes of the pandemic. (laughs) I feel like that's kind of when (laughs) I, I, you really took off and folks started, you know, listening Mm -hmm. to your music for comfort and for feeling like they had some connection to home because I was stuck in DC. I couldn't go home very much. My parents were in like a category, you know, they were immunocompromised and I was immunocompromised. And so your music was like such a bomb for me. And so I'm thrilled for you to be on the show. So welcome Philip to the show. Hi, praise. That's very nice. Thank you. And I'm happy to be here. And uh, yeah, like I, I think that was the, obviously COVID was not, a great thing in a lot of ways but for 
uh, creatives in some ways. Like for me, I was forced to start doing stuff online and it literally like, changed my whole life. So it's, it's really nice to hear you say that. So I appreciate it. Oh, uh, that's I, well, I'm excited to hear about how it changed your life. But first, I think people just want to know a little bit more about who you are and where you grew up sure. and, and how Appalachia has shaped you. Yeah, of course. So I grew up, um, in a small town called Montgomery, West Virginia, like 30 minutes from Charleston. So it's like this little town is half in Kanawha County and half in Fayette County. Um, and so I, a very small town, a couple thousand people. And I grew up, you know, like a lot of people like playing music in church. And my dad did the music at our church growing up. And I actually learned the fiddle from a music professor at West Virginia Tech that used to be in Montgomery. And he was an oboe player, but I, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn the violin. So he's like, I told my mom, I was like, well, I could teach him, you know, and any, anyway, so I used to go to Vandalia gathering every year in Charleston. Amazing. And it was, a, and it was so good for me and my ear because, you know, you just kind of walk up to these groups of musicians playing and um, you just kind of sit in, you like my dad, be like, just, just play along with them. And so you're figuring it out and how to listen to other people. So I think, I think one thing, one language that we speak really well in this part of the country in Appalachia is like music and like that storytelling mm -hmm. vibe. And so I don't know, like it always has stuck with me and resonated with me. My family is all still in the Charleston and Montgomery area on, on you know my side. Um, and yeah, so I've, I've played the violin slash fiddle my whole life. I picked up the guitar in college, started songwriting in college and stuff like that. And so, you know, that's, that's me in a nutshell, but I, I have those like, I guess Fayette County, that part of the state as my roots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, that makes me really happy. I live in Charleston. Nice. So yeah, I'm coming to you, coming to you live from Charleston. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. That is really cool. I think that those, I, I agree with you. I think that storytelling and that kind of intergenerational passage of the art form from one, one generation to the next is so vital to like totally. what we to what we do here. Um, and so I, I just, I really value that. I think that that's really awesome. So you grew up playing music in church, yep. um, but what are your like musical roots? Like what did you listen to growing <laughs> up that kind of inspired what you do today? It's very vast. <laughs> so like I come from, as you probably know, there's a lot of Lebanese in Charleston. Mm. So my mother's side is all Lebanese. And so growing up, like we had, I have a huge family. It's like my big fat Greek wedding. So, you know, shout out to all the, the Murads and Ayubs and everybody in, in the Charleston area. Um, but we we also had a lot of like, so we have a, like a big, loud Arabic family. And we also had a lot of like Jewish family friends just because the, the cultures are so similar. And I think people would be surprised about how how like diverse the Charleston area is sometimes like between the Indian community, the Lebanese community, the Jewish community, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So on, I have on that side, all that like ethnic stuff happening. And then my dad's side is just, you know. West Virginia like <laughs> country, yeah. you know, so we got people saying like hummus with like a, the Appalachian accent. You want some more hummus and Brian, <laughs> you know, that kind of like, like, like my grandma would talk. So like all this like mismatch of culture was also a big mismatch, whatever you want to say of music. Yeah. So like my mom, like loved, was like a freak for Broadway, like loves Broadway and Barry Manilow. So like, I remember hearing those people in the house, but my dad, I have him to thank for like, all this like old country, like old folk, you know, kind of music. And one of my best friends, his, his dad was like a huge Dan Fogelberg fan. And so he used to have all this like, like kind of hippies folk Americana yeah. playing in their house too. And so like, I don't know, like, uh, like 
one of the things I love about that kind of music, especially with its like first cousin of like gospel and bluegrass, is that it's, it's so much you have to learn how to improvise and yeah. things like that. And you you hear people's different. Okay, uncle uncle so and so plays it different than this guy over here. So like, how are they doing it? Like all those things. So that's probably a very long answer to your question. No, I think but that's an that awesome is, um, answer. <laughs> it's not what I expected. That, it's like all of that. It's all of that. You know what I mean? And so like you, I'm very eclectic in what I enjoy. Yeah. And I think it helped me my mind to be open to how can I use this instrument, the violin to do things maybe a little bit differently than what people are expecting. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's totally valid. And that shines through in your work because you add fiddle to songs that people would never have expected. And I think that having the breadth of knowledge and the depth of experience that you are talking about there, that the only somebody who's been exposed to all of that can do what you do. And so I, your your work is not only high caliber, it's totally addictive. I mean, you could scroll oh, you. on your page forever. I, I just, I encourage <laughs> anybody who's not done that to just do it because it'll make your day better. But what do you think that it is about your videos that draws people in, that makes them come back? Well, I think, and I... I do not want this to sound cringy at all, but I will often have people send me these messages on Instagram or in the comments or whatever. And, you know, they, they really enjoy the music, but they, they, they feel like that the videos emanate joy. And so I feel like for a lot of people, like that, like music is my, besides being with my family and my, my wife and kids and stuff, like music is my favorite thing. And it's the most fun to, I can't believe I get to do it you know, for a living. And so, you know, it, like, like the, the biggest joy as a musician is seeing people emote through your music, like seeing that your music is affecting them. Or maybe like if you're playing a song you wrote and they're connecting with the lyrics and you kind of see that little tear in their eye, like that's the best feeling because you have that. There's no other connection like that in the world. And so I don't know. I, th- I think people, people, um, th- they, they feel like it's genuine and they connect with it and they, you know, because you don't uh, I had somebody tell me a long time ago, like as a musician, you, you don't want listeners as much as you want fans. And that that particular F word, all that means is that it's somebody that is like more than just they're not just there for like this one song of yours. They like they're there for like the yeah. whole journey. They like what you bring to the table. And so that from the beginning has been my mantra. It kind of goes where it goes. I just want people to have a good time and and like you know, kind of get on board with what I'm doing and just you know, have a good time while they're yeah, listening Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think that there is this joy in the, in the way that you play and in your music and um, just the way that even like the, fu- the clear fun that you're having while you're remixing songs yeah. is, is so yeah. evident. So I, well, you're, you. <laughs> you've been a musician for a long time. You, you talk about that yes. on your page. You used to play a bunch of weddings and, and before you really broke out. Totally. So What kind of, I mean, this, the particular style that you do now is pretty unique and it's Uh different than I would say like a normal journey of a musician. Um, So I would, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that transition (laughs) from like, you know, hometown musician, you know, wedding band to celebrity musician on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, you know, as a kid, excuse me as a kid we used to play like 
at my grandma's like women's club meetings. And then we would like play at weddings and you start play, you play one wedding, you play a million weddings. So a lot of times in the summer while my friends were working at whatever the mall or whatever, like I'd make all my money just playing weddings with my siblings. And we had a little band called strings and ivory. Cause my brother plays the fiddle. My sister plays the piano. And then like a lot of people in college had like two, <laughs> two college bands. One was called yesterday's tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> yesterday's tomorrow. And the other one was uh, called like five mile drive. And we used to just like, I went to college in Tampa mm -hmm. Bay in Florida. So we used to go play like at all the coffee shops and like the little like beach, you know, like their little open bar areas, like by the sand on Clearwater beach. And so love doing that. And then like life happened. So I went and, you know, I had a, a lot of friends that were doing the music music thing for a job right out of college. And they were doing this starving artist routine. And I was like, it was scaring me to death. And I was like, I don't know. I think I'm going to end up hating music if I do that. And so I went and got my master's degree in marketing because I wasn't ready for the real world. And I knew I wanted to try to do something in marketing. And so, you know, anyways, get married, have kids. You know, I'm working in the in the corporate world doing just doing weddings for extra money and then um, kind of going into 20 uh, like the middle of 2019. I went to Nashville for this like musicians conference and on the way home, I was like, I've I have got to give this like one more try. Like this is what I meant to do. I really believe that. And so I wrote I've still got it on my desk. I wrote something down. I was like, OK, create every create every day, even if it's something small. And I legit did that since like September of 2019. There hasn't been a day that went by that I haven't touched music in some capacity. And so, you know, when COVID happened, I was about ready to go start trying to like play local areas here around Detroit and then go try to go to West Virginia and like some connections I knew and like, okay, maybe I'll try to go play at the Purple Fiddle in Thomas or whatever. Just try to go to the places that I know. And then yeah. the world shut down. So I started doing it online and that is what changed my life is I, I was doing it like from my iPhone, no, no lights or studio or microphone. And I did it the first time and I had a couple thousand people come to this live and I did it the next day. And over the course of an hour, I had 320,000 viewers over like an hour. And I was like, and this was on Reddit at the time. This was the only thing I knew about streaming. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I had to get my stuff together because people are like, well, how do we tip? Like, where's your Spotify? Blah, blah, blah. Like, where, how do we follow you? Like, where's your album? Blah, blah, blah. And so like that kind of helped me kick into gear and be like, all right, I need to like get legit with the way I yeah. structure my stuff. And so that was like a turning point where stuff started really becoming more of like, this could be fun. And like, oh, this is like, this feels like it's like happening. And then I would, a lot's happened since then, but that was kind of like the impetus of like, okay, I'm really going to go after this. And yeah, make it I, I really want to, to, to go back to what you said about how you might have hated, ended up hating music had you gone down the same yes. route that maybe yes. a few of your other friends have gone down. And I've seen that. I, I you know, I come from a very musical family. My dad has a Grammy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we bluegrass music is yeah. like, it's the, it's the whole thing for me. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. So, I, I would love to hear, like, how do you keep that love? How does it not turn into a job? Because music mm. is so, you know, it's so mixed with a musician's identity and their joy and who they are, but also tied to your money and the, abil the ability to pay your rent yeah. and those kinds of things. And, you know, if you were, if you had advice for, for young people coming up who want to be musicians, I mean, what would you say? Yeah, I, I think that's 
that's like stuff that I've had to learn along the way. And I think that one of the biggest blessings of doing it at the time I'm doing it is that one, I like had the corporate job that where it was, I was working from home. So like, I wasn't having to like make money during a live show to pay my bills or like to get the kids clothes mm-hmm. or whatever. So like that, that was helpful. And I know that was like, obviously that's like a benefit, but I would say in terms of advice is I would say like, don't do not wait till circumstances are perfect to try to get going. Because like I said, my, in fact, one of the songs of mine that I released that has the most streams is I did that completely from like, this is not the way you record a song. And I didn't know what I was doing. I did like 11 different video, like one takes of me on an iPad, play, one playing the guitar part, singing, singing all the different parts, playing the different parts. Then I mashed it together in iMovie cut it up, added some reverb from this like Korean app. It didn't even have English in it. And I was like, okay, that sounds decent, like a live recording. And, and I, I just needed to get something on Spotify because everybody mm-hmm. was asking me. And I would say stuff on social media, like, all right, I was done in the studio. And like the studio was like my <laughs> spare bedroom. Like I was trying to like, my iPad kept breaking because it was so old. And anyways, but like, if you wait till the conditions are just right and you've got all the things like, okay, I've got a mic now and now I've got the camera and now I've got this connection and now I'm making a lot of money off of my royalties. That never happens. Like I'm in, I'm in year three of like doing this a lot, a lot, like thousands and thousands of hours of live shows I've done online and stuff, stuff like that. So I've learned a lot yeah. every single time, but um, you know, from a monetary standpoint, I think it's a great time to be indie because you can do so much for yourself in terms of like when I first was starting out, like I would do a live show, let's say a two hour show. And after the show, I would block an hour on my calendar for what I would call homework. And every single person that donated to my show, I would send them an email and be like, thank you. Here's how you can check out the rest of my stuff means the world to me you know, follow me here and you can listen again. And I would do that for literally for every single donor that would send me a dollar, $2, $20, whatever. And like, I don't, cause I was really wanting to build the community. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, wow, like one, I used to get done with the show. I'm like, well, that's, I got 10 new followers on Instagram. Amazing. 10 new fans, you know? And that was like a grind to just get to like a thousand. And so Anyways, there, there's no substitute for the work, I guess, is like what I'm saying. But you just got to like, you got to pull it in from different ways. Get creative with it, you know, yeah. and take it one step at a time. Do what you do. Do what you can do every single day and just build it. Yeah, take nothing for granted. I love that. Yeah, for sure. So for sure. now you are you are back doing live performances. You have a couple dates on the calendar. Yes. You're, you're also doing live streams. Um, so... Yep what you know what is that like being out there as like philip bowen now you know you're doing you're doing yeah. something different than you know strings and ivory or you know you're doing uh-huh. something a little you know it's more tied <laughs> yeah, yeah. to you as yeah. a person what is that like it's very surreal i will tell you like i recently did something with a wvu and their football program and i was at the game and then i played at the game and then like it was so surreal. Like, I mean, I couldn't, I, I don't want that to sound the wrong way, but like I kept getting stopped over and over for like pictures and things like that. And that's how that started happening, especially over the last year. Like, especially when I'm traveling, like if I'm in the airport or if I go play a private event, there's always people that will come up and um, ask for a picture or just want to chat or whatever, which is really cool. But it's very surreal too. Cause it's like, Whoa, like, 
like I, I got to, I had the pleasure last year or this year, I played at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. Which yeah, is a that's huge awesome. Deal. Congratulations. I got him. I got him. Thank you. Thank you. I got invited to go as like a feature performer. So I got to play like seven originals. And then a month later, I got to play at third in Lindsley. So this is like two yeah. kind of iconic Nashville venues. And at the third in Lindsley show, I was playing my song Stella and I got to the chorus and I was doing something extra instrumental and somebody in the crowd that was not my family, like jumped the chorus and started singing me the lyrics. Wow. And I was like, like, I almost started crying. I was like, what? Like, and people knew the lyrics and I was like, what? Like, so it's very much a joy for me. It truly is like, there's nothing like playing in front of people, like in a real room with that energy coming back at you. And, you know, so I've done, I've done a ton of, I do a lot of private events. I like that because of my family schedule. And then sometimes like if an artist I know is in town or they want to collab on a few dates, I'll you know, play with the band for a few dates or something, or I'll figure all that out, but it's just, uh, that's awesome. That is really, really cool that you were able to do that. So you do, you do write your own music, you release your own music, you know, if there was a particular message or something that you want to convey an emotion or or something that you want to get out to the world with your music, what is that? Well, I would say in general, I try to like, I'm a, my grandmother used to tease me that I was a, like a glass three quarters full person. Like I'm, I'm an optimist to a fault, like for sure. Um, and so, you know, specific, but specific to our region, like Appalachia, our home state, like anybody that's from Appalachia gets like really, uh, obviously like, I don't know, like a silly example. Like you see something like Hibbley Elegy come out and you're like, oh. <laughs> Like, you know, you're like, oh man, please. No, like that, that, this is what you're showing. Like, this is what you show. And, um, and so like, I I don't know. My goal is like, I don't ever want to ignore that. Like what makes Appalachia, Appalachia. Like we have problems like everywhere else, but, but I try, I try my best to like, to like really focus on that human the positive elements of just like a life, you know, like I, it's not that I never write a sad song, but I try to write what I know, you know? So like, I, um, I don't know. Like I have this, I'm recording my album like next week in Bridgeport. I'm going to do some of it in Bridgeport and some of it in Nashville. Cause I wanted to do a bunch of it in West Virginia. And I have this song I wrote and it's called vampire in Appalachia. And it's about, it's literally about how I feel like as a local, sometimes when you're here that there's this like vampire of like, uh, like these companies that come in and just bleed us dry. And then they leave and mm-hmm. take all the money with them. And then we also have this like horrible, not to bring it down, but this like opioid epidemic, which is just the, it's just such a cancer. It's so bad. And like, I have family and friends that have been affected and I've been at funerals of people that I loved that like, like, it's like, who even is that person? Like it's happened so fast. And so like, I, I'm like, I think that's going to be maybe like the title song on my album because it's just, um, I don't know. I just feel like it's so important to focus on what makes us positive, but also to like realize that like, you know, I don't know. We, we just have so much to offer and somebody tells you something enough and you start to believe it. I feel, I feel like it happens yeah. here. Sometimes we're like, Oh, well maybe we are just this, or maybe we are just that. And it's no, it's not true. Like there's so much more and there's good that's happening. So if I can like shine a little bit of light on the good um, to, especially my home state, like I'm so passionate about West Virginia and like where I grew up and my friends and family there. So like, that's my, that's my thing, but also just life in general. I just get tired of, I get tired of getting beat up by negativity like everywhere you look. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're totally right that 
that we have been told this narrative about ourselves and about who we are. And that's something we try and talk about a lot on the podcast to try and counter that narrative and to, you know, we want young people to stay in Appalachia if, but, but like we understand like, my co-host is an ex-Padalachian because he couldn't make it work here. You know, like it's, yeah. it, there's yep. so much that's wonderful about this place. And, um, you know, I, I up and moved my husband who is like a Bethesda, Maryland boy all the way out here to West Virginia. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's and awesome. you know, this that's is, awesome. this is my heart too. And so I think that that message yes. of, of ensuring that even though there are bad things, there are bad things everywhere, Yes, but we have True. to be able to be excited about the potential in the future of Appalachia. And that's, I do think that that is, yeah. is really cool about your music and I cannot wait to hear that song. Um, I think it's a great metaphor. Yeah. It really is. I mean, the, of the extraction yeah. economy, just like it is a vampire that's sucking our lifeblood. Yeah. That like that's that's honestly the hook of the song. Like the way that the chorus ends is like, "There's a vampire in Appalachia, and we're running out of blood." And that's like that is like, like I wrote that song with Ryan Laughlin, who's a, a Charleston yeah. native as well. We wrote it together in Nashville when I was down there when I played the Bluebird. And I was like, "Dude, I want to I want to play this song." And you let me know if it's like if you think it's like cheesy or he was just like. <gasps> Like he's like, let's finish it. So he got me finished it, but it's done by two um, you know, artists from the area. And I I agree with you that like like that whole extraction economy and stuff like that, but that doesn't have to define yeah. like who we are. Like, and we have all this beauty here, like that we don't need to like like I'm not like a political person at all, but like I, you know, like we have this beauty that we don't need to like, we don't need to rip out of the earth. We have plenty of other things going for us. And if we have to find something in our region that is our yeah. calling card, and that's not to discredit anybody that's done the very hard, you know, life altering work of being down in those, the, down in those mines, like pulling out that black gold. Like yeah. I totally get it, but we have to find we have to find something that is like our calling card that that is prosperous for yeah, like the long run. I, I, you know? I'm with you. And, you know, one of those things I hope is our music. I think that we have, totally. yeah, we totally. have something so unique and so special. And and for me, yeah. bluegrass and folk music, there's just nothing else like it. When I when I hear no. when I hear yeah. bluegrass music, I feel it in my very soul. And I feel like that's something that, yes. you know, a lot of other music doesn't really touch these days. And then you, you take somebody to a bluegrass concert. Like, I don't know if you've ever taken someone to a bluegrass concert for the very first time and they experience that and they experience what it's like like to be there in person feeling that. And it's like life-changing. It, it totally is. And I think it's, it's two reasons. One is like the, the skill that it takes when you see these great musicians like improvising with each other and you're like, Oh, that's so rad. Like, that's cool. Like they're talking, it's like you're having a conversation Mm -hmm. with the song with the, with the instruments. And two is like the reason that Americana and folk and stuff is so good is because it's the storytelling, right? It's not just like, it's not just like, you know, whatever, like, and no no offense to anybody that does like pop or pop country, like that's all wonderful, but it's like, it's so much more than just like, you know, she does this and I do that. Let's pack up the truck. It's way more. It's like these deep, long yeah. stories. And like, 
like um like my my friend charles uh, wesley goblin he's from west virginia he's an amazing storytelling musician like sierra oh, farrell's doing yeah. great things yeah. john r miller like there's so many great artists from this state like who are telling like really amazing yeah. stories you know and i think that's what sucks totally and that, you like, can like feel tough. you can feel your papa's spirit in the songs it's like yes 100 <laughs> that. that's 100 percent. that's 100 percent it because that's how you used to like learn stuff you know like you, you, you hear like whatever generation before you, you, you know this song that's how people used to teach me fiddle tunes it's like you heard this tune or whatever and that's just like that's how yeah. i play it now you play it you know, that's not make awesome. it your own. So it's, it's so what yeah. are your goals for your music? And and if you have plan, I mean, this record that's upcoming is very exciting. Yeah. Um, and so I yeah. imagine that's definitely in in your plans. But let's let's hear yeah, let's hear what one. the what the goals and plans are. Goals and plans are I it is a life goal of mine. I think this one's gonna happen. I really want to like I want to get the record done. And like just release a body of work. I've released a bunch of singles and stuff like that, but this is like a body of work. Um, I also, I would love in terms of like venues, I really would love to play mountain stage sometime. So like, that would be like a dream come true because it's like, you know, home state, hometown. Um, I also would love to play at the Opry, like to stand in like the circle and like play a song that I wrote like in the circle, that would be like a dream come true. Um, but you know, really my goal, my, my short term goals for next year is like release this album, get it out the door. Um, I'm, I'm planning on doing a lot more like in-person shows. Like I still like, I love corporate events because they, you know, it's a, like, it's, it's easy travel that yeah. budget. Like it's, it's, it's a great way. It's a great way to do it. You know, you're not like you're out in the back of a van for three weeks, you know, it's really nice. Um, and then I want to do like, I'm planning on some like, kind of like mini like mm -hmm. regional tours where like, let's say like Southeast do like, you know, four or five dates and go home for a little bit and then go out West and do four or five dates. So I'm trying to work through all of that and just, you know, this, cause this is like the first year where really like my music busyness and work like has surpassed what I was doing in the corporate world. And so like, where, where like I was double dipping as long as yeah. humanly possible, you know? So I still have a little toe in there to like for insurance and stuff like that. But like I, music has become so big, which is, yeah. that's what you want. Like if you can, if you can like legit support your family and do your music, it's what a joy, like it's the absolute yeah. best. So what is your, what is your family think, to, like, by the way? I mean, they've got to be like totally stunned and excited. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so fun. Like my, my mom is like, you know, of course, like biggest fan, like she, like, and then you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of that family, my kids are fairly, you know, young. I have like a uh, two girls and a boy. So they're like nine, six and two. And so like, they like, love it. They think it's so silly. Like I've been with them. We were like, for example, we were in uh, like the city in Florida for spring break, like a fam little family trip. And we were all playing at the park. And this is one of the first times this stuff like started happening. And this other family was there and this, the husband was like, looked at me, he's like, Hey man, I'm really sorry. But like, you're Philip Bowen, right? Can I take a picture with you? I was like, oh yeah, just not the kids, you know, like, but they thought that was so, like, why do you want a picture <laughs> with our dad? Like, it was just like, they, they were like, were teasing me about it the whole week. And um, anyways, like stuff like that, but they, they love it. Like, I just, I just treat it like business trips. Like we're trying to decide, you know, I don't really have much of a desire to like, we might go to Nashville at some point. I'd rather like live in West Virginia if I have my choice of the two. Cause like, I don't feel like I need to be there in town every single day yeah. to do the music thing. Like a lot of people are doing it outside of living there. 
um i'd rather my kids have the stability and then i can like travel yeah. as i need to travel yeah. that's so, that's what i mean that's what my dad yeah. did when we were growing up we lived in like we just lived in a small town called canton right outside of Asheville, north carolina and he was just back and forth um oh, yeah, to, yeah. to nashville you know all the time he's actually playing the opry in december yeah. so i need to i need to <laughs> oh. with that oh man um I mean, you do your dad your dad's a rock star I, I like um i know like that band like balsam range like so good yeah so they're good. they're really amazing um and and he's just like my hero in life so um but yeah i i i definitely you know mountain stage i feel like i feel like at podlatcha could pull a couple strings there for you <laughs> we can put in a good word yeah I, I, yeah i feel like i feel like that's gonna happen like I, i've been fortunate enough to do a couple of things with the state of west virginia's tourism yeah. board this year so like i played at i played at like the governor's tourism conference in huntington that was super fun and like literally like monday i was in louisville uh for this like southern states tourism thing and i played for like the lunch and everything and it was really fun so like i was anyways i think between like some of the connections and then i think also with like an album coming out like it's a little bit easier to do yeah, so yeah we'll see that's awesome but i would just love to do it i know i could fill it up too because like all friends and family would be so much fun so yeah yeah it would time. be like it would be like 100 percent just like <laughs> just like relative oh uh, it'd be a bunch, of a bunch of like loud lebanese people like yes for sure <laughs> incredible incredible yes. so all right, to wrap up our conversation, um, mm -hmm. if people want to support you, you know, when does the album come out? How can they get it? How can they contribute to your your work and your mission? Yeah, that, I love it. So I don't have a release date for the album yet. I'm going to be doing the bulk of the recording, like literally like next week. So like we'll work through all of that. But I have a ton of stuff available anywhere you get music. So Spotify, Amazon, whatever, iTunes. However you do your thing, I'm out there. Just look for my name, uh, Philip Bowen with one L. And that's my real last name. You know, no pun. It's true. It's Bowen is my last name. And then um, all my links are on my website. But, you know, um, getting close to a million on TikTok. So if you want to come out there and give us a follow, that's awesome. Instagram, however you do your thing. We're there. You know, come say hello. And uh, and if you want to support, like I, I do live shows most of the time. If I'm not traveling, I do like live shows a Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I do those on uh, Twitch and TikTok usually. And I do about a two-hour show, sometimes a three-hour show. just depends on what's going on. Sometimes I have like guest artists come in to the studio and like do it with me and all that kind of stuff. And then I'll be posting some live dates for 2023. I hear soon. I'll put those on my website. So hopefully I'll be in Nashville a couple of times, hoping to do some stuff in West Virginia. So we'll awesome. see how it goes. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining us. <sighs> I I'm just so thrilled that we finally got you on the show and, yeah, and that, you know, we, we have, it's so clear that like you're now a friend of the show. You have all the same goals that we do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I always would tell, especially like podcast things. And like, typically my answer is like, if they say like, if I were like a West Virginia based, like I, I did a, the, the guys from Mountaineer Media, like when last year, and I was just like, I'm like anything for West Virginia. You let me know. I will be there. So <laughs> it's a real joy to talk to you. I really admire what y'all are doing and it's, uh, it's, it's super fun. So happy to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that was our interview with Philip Bowen, and you know what? I think we're going to push our Under the Radar to next week, because we've got a pretty long episode right now, and I didn't really want to cut any of it, because I think it's just so wonderful, and why don't we just make it all about music? I think that sounds just great. So I hope you all enjoyed, and we'll be back next week with more Appod Latcha. Thank you all. Have a wonderful night.